kind of fun. Good morning, Hope. Uh, the Wayback Playback Machine takes us all the way back to October of 1986. I was a freshman wandering the halls of Eldora New Providence High School when Crowded House released their first album, or, or maybe it'd be more accurate to say their first cassette tape. And one of the songs on that cassette was that song, Don't Dream It's Over. Thank you to Zoe and to Jim and to the worship team for that uh, fantastic cover of that song. And you can thank me later for putting that... Uh, 
what do they call those things, earworms or something like that? You'll be, you'll be humming that uh, throughout the rest of the day. Don't dream it's over. I, I wonder where your mind goes. Where, where, where do you go when you hear this phrase, don't dream it's over? Maybe you're a Cyclone and Hawkeye fan and your hopes are dashed for whatever you were dreaming of for your team. Don't dream it's over. It's not over yet. Uh, maybe you go to all kinds of places. I, I go two places kind of simultaneously. One of the places I go is I start thinking about the things that I wish were over, and maybe the reality is they're not going to be over for a lot longer than I want them to be around. So I remember when our kids were little, we have six kids, I remember the diaper changing stage and how often I would dream of when the diaper changing stage is over. Uh, six kids, you can imagine there's a lot of driving them around to their activities and to school and to friends and that sort of thing. And as awesome as that is, as much as I love the windshield time and the opportunity to connect with my kids, kids as we're driving places, I do find myself dreaming of the day when they can drive themselves to those places and dreaming of the day when my taxi driving services are no longer needed. And then they get their license and then I get the bill for our car insurance and I find myself dreaming of the days my high car insurance rates are over. Lots of things I'm dreaming, I'm wishing were over. I, I'm dreaming of the day the election is over. What are we down to? Ten days, nine days, something like that. What I love is, is watching people, whatever their political persuasion is, a lot of people are voting early. And after they vote early, they put on social media, hey, I voted now, how do I opt out of the ads for the rest of this you know, election season? Uh, I'm dreaming of the day the, the pandemic is over. And the day I no longer have to, you know, remember my mask or to remember to keep my distance from people. And I think a lot of times when I go down this kind of path, things that I'm wishing were over but I'm realizing they may not be over for quite a while, there's something about it that feels a little defeating, maybe a little hopeless. That's one direction I go when I think of this phrase, don't dream it's over. Of course, there's another direction to go, a direction that's a little more hopeful. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? That's all that I could show you from that movie before we had to start bleeping things. So, yeah, I, I want, we can go in a hopeful direction with this phrase, too. Like, it's not over until we decide it's over. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Because we all have these situations and circumstances in our life, right, where... Whatever it is we are facing, it causes us to feel like, I don't know, kind of this hopelessness around it. But what if we did not give up hope? What if we didn't fall into despair? What if we didn't dream it's over? What if instead we looked at a passage like this? I love this passage from Psalm 52. Let me just read it for you. But I am like an olive tree, thriving in the house of God. I will always trust in God's unfailing love, I will praise you forever, O God, for what you have done. I will trust in your good name, in the presence of your faithful people. It's like this phrase, faithful people, use this phrase, don't dream it's over, to encourage one another, to lift up one another, to support one another. People of faith point people to the faithfulness of God. I mean, it is not the strength of my faith, it's not the wisdom of my decisions, it's not the goodness of my life, Instead, it's the faithfulness of God. I trust in God's unfailing love. I trust in God's good name because over and over and over again, God has proven to be trustworthy in my life. So I praise God forever for what God has done for me. You praise God forever for what God has done 
for you. It's because of the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of our God that we are able to say, don't dream it's over, and to hold on to our hope, and to hold on to our faith, no matter what it is we're facing. Now, one thing that will be over after today is the message series that we've been in this month uh, called Once Upon a Time, where we're taking a look at stories that Jesus told, and we're connecting those stories to the vision of hope. Let's read our vision one more time. It's on the screen. Read it with me. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. So, Each week this month, we've taken a look at a different parable or story of Jesus and connected it to a different line. Today, we get to the last line, make heaven more crowded. Uh, Sometimes people will ask me, Pastor Scott, I don't understand how your mind works. What in the world does an 80s pop song have to do with Jesus and and living a life of faith? So just a little glimpse inside my mind. So I I know what the message series is. I, I know what the text is I'm supposed to preach from, Luke chapter 14 and the parable of the great feast, the great banquet. And so I'm reading through that and I'm remembering we're supposed to be talking about this idea of making heaven more crowded. And Jesus actually talks about that in a very real way in that passage. We'll we'll get to it in just a little bit. But when I see the word crowded, I think of crowded house and the only song that I know by crowded house, don't dream it's over. And I start looking at the lyrics. When the world comes in, they come, the world comes to build a wall between us. And I start to see connections between this lyric and the story that that Jesus is telling. Neil Finn of Crowded House, he's writing and he's singing about this reality that we all face in life, that there are forces at work trying to put up walls, build walls between us. It could be walls of regret, it could be walls of hurt, It could be walls of guilt or shame, but whatever the walls is, these walls that get built up, they cause relational damage. And so you look at Jesus and the life Jesus lives, and and you remember Jesus is the embodiment of God. And so when you see Jesus living his life, you see God living his life. And the stories that Jesus tells are stories to help us understand who God is. One of the things you see in, in all of these stories that God has come not to put up walls, but God has come to tear down walls. Think of the stories we've looked at just in this message series, the parable of the sower. It's like, here's how walls get built up between God and humanity. Or the parable of the Good Samaritan, here's how walls get built up between different cultures, people of different cultures. Last week, it was the prodigal son, the lost son, and it was both, how walls get built up between people like fathers and sons or brothers and brothers, but also Jesus tells the story that the father in the story of the prodigal son is really our heavenly father, and this is how walls can get built up between our heavenly father and children of our heavenly father. Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, shortly after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on on all people, on men and women, on young and old, on on people from every race and every culture and every language. That early church, those first followers of Jesus, a big part of the message that they were sharing is they were asking people to believe Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Son of God. It included this message of God tearing down walls. Read with me Ephesians 2.14 that's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility 
that separated us. In other places, the New Testament writers will say, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus because a big part of what Jesus wants to do is tear down those walls that separate us or, or that divide us. We're in this last story, the parable of the great banquet, uh, the parable of the great feast from Luke chapter 14. And one of the walls that we see Jesus breaking down in this story is the wall between insiders and outsiders, or, or you might more specifically say religious insiders and religious outsiders. If you have your Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open up to Luke 14. The, the parable takes place about the middle of the chapter, but I want to start at the beginning of the chapter. Luke chapter 14 begins with Jesus being invited to kind of a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. And uh, there's also someone there who's in need of healing. Jesus sees someone at this dinner who's in need of healing, and so Jesus asks the Pharisees, what do you think? It's the Sabbath day. Do you think it would be okay for me to heal this person on the Sabbath day? And Jesus asked the question because he knows what they've been teaching because of their interpretation of Scripture. They've been teaching everyone that, no, that would not be okay. That would be a sinful act to heal someone on the Sabbath day. That would be the kind of behavior that would really upset God because it's somehow disrespectful or dishonoring of God to heal someone on the day that's supposed to be reserved for God. And Jesus is trying to point out that's bad theology. That's bad religion. And what bad religion does is it puts up walls rather than tearing down walls. So he asks them the question and they don't respond. They're just silent. So Jesus goes ahead and heals the man. And in doing that, that action is a way of breaking down a wall of legalism. Again, legalism keeps people separated from one another and from God story continues and Jesus is just kind of observing what everyone is doing at this dinner party and one of the things he observes is everybody is trying to make their way they're kind of scrambling to see who gets to be the one that sits in the seat of honor at this party I, I remember family gatherings around holidays when I was growing up uh, there were so many people there were always more than one table and so there was the grown-up table and there was the kids table and I remember how excited and how awesome it felt when I finally grew up enough that I got to move from the kids' table to the grown-up table. I remember it really well because it was just last year. Um, <laughs> part of what Jesus is doing, thank you for laughing, uh, part of what Jesus is doing is he's saying, don't be in such a hurry to move from the kids' table to the grown-up table. Just be satisfied wherever you are sitting. Because part of what kind of is motivating this move or what the people in the story are doing, they're motivated by pride. And so Jesus decides it would be a good time to teach a little lesson on humility. Pick up the story in verse 12. Jesus turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. It seems to me part of what Jesus is saying is uh, for religious people, for people of faith, as we follow after God, as we, as we try to live a life of faith, we do this... Whatever we do, we do it not expecting to be repaid 
for what we do. We do it because it's the right thing to do. It's the faithful thing to do. It's a good thing to do. It's a loving thing to do. But we don't do it expecting to be repaid for what we do. A couple of opportunities that we have in front of us as a church to kind of live out what Jesus is teaching in the middle of Luke 14. Uh, You heard Eli talk about the winter clothing drive. We partner with Project Fresh Start right here in Ankeny to provide winter clothing, coats and hats and mittens and gloves and scarves and boots for uh, kids in this community, whether it's elementary or middle school or high school kids who need that kind of clothing. And we're going to give it away not knowing who it's going to go to. We're going to give it away not knowing, hey, I wonder if these people will end up coming to Hope Kids or Power Life or Ignition. They probably won't. They might come to Vacation Bible School because it seems like every kid in our community comes to Vacation Bible School, but we're not doing this as like uh, some kind of a strategy for getting people into the church. We're just doing it because it's a good thing to do. We have the opportunity to do it. Same as the Thanksgiving meal outreach. All sorts of ways that you can volunteer here in the building or not even coming to the building, uh, you can volunteer to help with this project. And Most of the meals, a vast majority of the meals that get delivered this Thanksgiving through our partnership with Hope Ministries are going to go to people who will never set foot inside the walls of this church. And again, that's fine because that's not the point. The point is we have an opportunity to serve and to give and to love. And so we want to say yes to that invitation without expecting anything in return without expecting to be repaid for what we do. I think it's an important thing for us as a a church and for us as individuals to ask ourselves on a pretty regular basis, what really is our motivation behind the things we do? Are we motivated by the gospel of grace or, like much of the world around us, is our mindset, is our mentality, is is what's motivating the, the, the things we do and why we do it, is it really this quid pro quo kind of mindset that says, if I do this for you, I expect you to do something for me in return. If I scratch your back, I expect you to scratch my back. Quid pro quo is really the way the world works in a lot of places, but it's not the way of the kingdom of God. It's not the way of grace, and part of what Jesus is saying in the middle of this dinner party to a bunch of religious people, he says, I see your activity, I see your quote-unquote faithfulness, but I actually see through it. It's couched as love of others, but really it's a love of self, because the reason you're doing what you're doing is so that you can be rewarded by others looking at you as some holy person or because you think this is how faith actually works, that God rewards us for the good things we do. And Jesus says, this isn't how it works, not in the kingdom of God. Freely, you have received God's love. Freely, share that love with the people around you, not expecting to be repaid for what you've done. I mentioned earlier on in the message, I think one of the walls in this story is the wall between religious insiders and and religious outsiders. So Jesus is talking to Pharisees, and again, their interpretation of Scripture, Pharisees believe the people of Israel are God's chosen people. Now, why in the world would they believe that? Well, because the Bible told them so. Isaiah 44, now, listen to me, Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. This is God speaking. 
Or Amos 3, verse 2, you only, God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And there's all kinds of verses that have this same kind of uh, message and idea uh, around them in the Old Testament. And so the people of Israel have known for generations that they are God's chosen people, and they allowed that to go to their heads. Instead of using their chosenness to reach out to the world around them and invite everybody else to choose God's love. They use their chosenness to sort of isolate themselves, put up walls around themselves, and sort of be like, we're chosen and you're not, neener, neener, neener. And that never was God's intention. If you go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when God chooses Abraham and Abraham becomes Father Abraham, like the forefather of the Hebrew people and the the nation of Israel, one of the things God says in that moment is, I choose you, yes, but through you, all nations, all families on earth will be blessed. Yes, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, but through you, all families will know God and be known by God. That's how it was supposed to work, and we see glimpses of this actually happening in different places, maybe surprising places that you haven't noticed before, like in the Exodus, when uh, Moses is leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and on their way to the promised land, did you know it's not just the Hebrew people that God rescues? Go ahead and go to the next slide. A rabble of non-Israelites went with them, along with great flocks and herds of livestock. Not just the Israelites, not just the Hebrew people, non-Israelites as well, were rescued through the Exodus. Uh, Forty years later, when Joshua is ready to finally lead them into the promised land, they have to conquer the land first, and the first city they have to conquer is the city of Jericho, and there's an outsider, uh, a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute, and somehow uh, Joshua gets this connection with Rahab that helps him win the battle of Jericho. And she asks, if I help you, will you not kill me? Will you not kill my family? Can we instead become part of your family? She gets adopted into the family of God, so much so that she becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. And when the New Testament starts, this gospel of grace, we see in Jesus' family tree, Rahab, the outsider who's become an insider, showing up. This is how it's supposed to work. God says, I choose you so that you can help others know that they also are chosen. I bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world around you. It's how it's supposed to work, but by the time we get to Luke 14, that's just not how it's working. And so Jesus tells the story, the parable of the great feast, the parable of the great banquet. A guy is going to have a party, and he sends out a whole bunch of invitations, and when the party is ready, he tells people, the party's ready, now come, But all the people that he has invited, they just have one excuse after another why they cannot make it. Excuse after excuse after excuse. And you read through some of the excuses and they're just ridiculous, but you realize all of us, every single one of us, we are good at making excuses and our excuses are sometimes just as ridiculous. Just ask Jimmy Fallon and Zach Galifianakis. Take a look. Hey, Zach. Hey. Thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Sure. We should hang out soon. I'd like that, yeah. How about tonight? I can't. I, I have a dinner thing tonight, but tomorrow's good. Mmm. Date night with the wife. Friday? Friday, I have to take my fish to the doctor. Oh, uh, now the vet? It's a shrink. 
How about Saturday? Saturday, no can do. I'm getting a haircut, then growing it back out again. Um, how's Tuesday, then? Catching up on Law & Order. Which season? All of them. Never seen the show. Oh, you're gonna have a blast. How about Wednesday, 4 a.m.? I can on Wednesday. I'm braiding my landlord's hair. How about Thursday? I have to ride an elephant Thursday. You have to? Don't ask. Friday? Friday, uh, Friday's, no. Friday, I'm sitting in an empty room, staring at a wall in the dark. Want any company? My dad's gonna be there. Oh, never mind. Maybe this isn't a good month. How's your, uh, Movember? November this, this year is a wash because I've got to clone a bunch of dinosaurs and open a theme park, and mm -hmm. then something terrible goes wrong, and then, you know, I've got to learn the lessons of being God, so November's no good. How's December? December, I can't. I'm literally Santa Claus. That's you? Yep. Whoa, I didn't know that. How's your 2015? I'm leading an expedition to Mars, but I'll be back in 2020. I think that's good, actually. 2020? Okay, great. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm booked. The whole 20s are just a disaster for me. Okay, why don't we just, like, maybe pencil something in for January 1st, 2030? Sounds great. Okay, have a good one. Bye. It is good to hear laughter in the worship center again. It's okay to laugh at church. I just hope they're not prophetic. Did you hear him say the whole 20s are a disaster? Ah, so far, they're right. Anyway, uh, I sometimes wonder, as God is just kind of watching us live our lives, or God is like this, you know, heavenly parent. Those of you who are parents, and, and sometimes the explanations or reasons or excuses that our children come up with is just like as crazy as that kind of stuff. And I wonder if God, as he watches the way we live our lives, kind of hears similar kinds of ridiculousness. God's giving us an invitation. An invitation to life, eternal life, Absolutely abundant life, life that overflows, life that is full of hope and joy and peace and so many good things. And it's almost like we're saying, well, thanks for the invitation, Jesus, but I think I know better than you how to live, the best way to live. So just stand by and watch me go, Jesus. You look at the first story that uh, we looked at in this message series, the parable of the sower, farmer scattering seed and the seed falls in different places and as Jesus is explaining this parable the seed represents the word of God and uh, the soil represents how we receive the word of God and some of the seed falls among thorns and Jesus explains it by saying for some of us all too quickly the message of God's love and God's grace the message is crowded out by the worries of this life the lure of wealth and the desire for other things. Our theme this year at Hope, in the year 2020, all eyes on Jesus. And Jesus knows how easily we are distracted, how easy it is for us to lose focus and to put our focus on other things besides this invitation to the life that Jesus has for us. And again, these other things are not necessarily bad things. They're not necessarily evil things. A lot of times they're really good things, but when our focus becomes on them, when our priority becomes on them, other than this invitation that Jesus has for us, they quickly become reasons or maybe even excuses for why we are not faithfully following the way of Jesus. And so what might those reasons be? Where might you find yourself getting out of focus these days? What are you putting your eyes on and as a result you're not quite focused in on Jesus the way you need to be? And where do these reasons become excuses and do you see the way the excuses actually start to build walls between you and God and walls between you and the people in your life? 
So this is part of what's going on as Jesus tells the story to a bunch of religious insiders who have all kinds of excuses for why they're not going Jesus' way. He continues in the story, and so he says, because all these people say no, we need to send out invitations to a different group of people. There needs to be a whole bunch of other people we have to invite. Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. I know there are people in this room who are tempted to believe there is a wall between them and God. And that wall exists because God has put it there, because there's something about me, there's something about my behavior, there's something about my past that means I am not invited, I am not welcome at the great feast. you got to understand, Jesus says, nothing could be further from the truth. What Jesus wants is for anyone, everyone to come. Come so that the house will be full. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Jesus wants a crowded house. And part of what makes the house full is invitation. Invite, invite, invite. Jesus is encouraging people to invite at all times. And this might seem like a kind of strange time for us to say, hey, we really want you to be inviting people to join us for worship because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, we've taken out about half the seats in the worship center so that the rows can be six feet apart so we can practice social distance. But we still want the house to be full. We, we figured out uh, we can fit just a little over 200 people here and um, still maintain our safety protocols. I think they told me we have 214 this morning. Woo! Way to go. You guys, that's awesome. We can still fit a little more back there, so... I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't invite people to the 930 service. No, you can. That's fine. We'll, we'll make room. We'll find room. But there are other services as well. And we'll add more services if we need to. I mean, we'll just figure out how to do this thing. So thank you for being a church that understands the importance of invitation. One of the ways, and, and again, as you're inviting in the middle of a pandemic, please, uh, it's an invitation. No guilt no pressure, no coercing, no shaming people if they're like, I don't necessarily feel comfortable gathering together with you know, a congregation of people right now. That's when you invite them to hopeonline.tv, which is the way the vast majority of our church is, is still worshiping right now. But a culture of invitation is really important. And the phrase that we've used from the beginning around hope to help build this culture of invitation is the phrase, it's a get to, not a got to. Can we all say that out loud together? It's a get to, not a got to. It's a get-to when it comes to worship. We get to worship. We get to stream hopeonline.tv. We get to invite people. It's a get-to when it comes to serving. We get to bring clothing for students. We get to put together Thanksgiving meals. We get to serve. And it's so important for this to be kind of the, the hallmark of who we are as a church, as a congregation. Because if it ever switches, and it's really more a got-to than a get-to, that gets dangerous in a hurry. And I've been a part of a lot of churches where that actually is the reality. Like someone will say, you know what, uh, we got a lot of kids coming to children's ministry. We could use some volunteers in children's ministry or maybe volunteers for the confirmation uh, ministry for middle school students. And everyone just kind of looks around at each other and then somebody says, I'll do it. I hate kids. I really hate middle school kids, but I'll do it. I mean, somebody's got to do it. If I don't do it, somebody's got to do it, right? No. It's a get-to, not a got-to. God is faithful. God will provide. God will take care of things. When, when church is kind of motivated by a got-to, by obligation, by duty, by fear of what God might do to us if we don't, 
man, it gets really unattractive in a hurry. But if we can continue to remember it's a get-to, it's a get-to, it's a get-to, then we become a real joy-filled kind of community. And there's something really attractive, something contagious about joy. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. This is a, a rallying cry for hope. It's a rallying cry for joy. It's a rallying cry for us to remember to keep lifting God up, even when we're going through a, a low valley. It's a rallying cry to choose to praise. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. I want to show you a clip before the worship team comes out for our closing song. It's a clip from a movie called The Apostle that's well over 20 years old now. Uh, Robert Duvall plays a southern Pentecostal evangelist. Uh, he's trying to get a church started in a place where there's a lot of people who think they are not welcome, they are not invited. But he starts inviting them, and it starts small. Initially, there's a whole lot more empty seats than seats that are full. And so he begins building this culture. It's a get-to, it's a get-to, and he keeps reminding them how important it is to choose to praise God no matter what. Take a look. Well, here's what I want you to do now. I want you to open your Bible. You brought your Bible, didn't you? Amen. 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 Open your Bible to the 150th Psalm. That's the last Psalm there is. We're going to praise it. The 150th Psalm says, Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in your sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him. Yes. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him. Yes. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him. Yes. Praise him. Praise him. For the sound of a trumpet. Yes. We have trumpet here today. We got a trumpet? Amen. Glory. Amen. We have a trumpet. Glory. Thank you, sir. Praise him with a psaltery and harp. I, I don't think we got a harp here, do we? <laughs> Praise him with a timbre. Do we have a timbre? Praise him with, with stringed instruments and organ. We don't have we got an organ, but no organ play. play praise him with string instruments. We got string instruments? Come on, brother. Come on, That's enough. That's enough. Thank you. That's enough. 